Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. And today we have a guest. I heard about him on TV and he was writing something for his two boys so that they can be best prepared for life. And of course, as you know, I was thinking of my two boys and yeah, they need to hear this. So today I have 30-year veteran of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. He is an advisor, author, entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist. He worked on over 15 billion of transactions for hundreds of companies, including Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, Yelp. After retiring from Wall Street, he became an entrepreneur and he started four companies in technology, merchant banking, asset management, and media. He wrote a book, the way of the wall street warrior which is exactly the guide for his boys on how how to really learn life and so today we will discuss understanding human psychology why observation is key and how you can practice it welcome everybody dave leo hey dave what are you currently creating Oh, right now, actually, I just I've been working on a company, actually, an idea for quite some time. And we just uh, started to go live and unveil what we're doing. And next week, we're actually going to make a really massive uh, splash and a press release. But it's an, a company called Real8, R-E-E-L-8, so number 8.com. And is this breaking news? Is this breaking it news is, right it is now? Breaking news. So breaking we, news, everybody. <laughs> we we're we've, we're creating a NFT marketplace for Asian American filmmakers. So we are helping Asian American filmmakers. They're excited. They're, everybody's <laughs> excited. That's awesome. We're we're creating a marketplace where Asian American filmmakers can take existing films that they've created and then create NFT campaigns around that for their fans and their super fans. I love it that you always come from the minority angle. You come from the angle that really needs it, right? <laughs> and uh, I love it because, yeah, the, the, the where the need is, this is where you build stuff. And you don't stop. You could, you could have stopped building stuff. So why are you building the next thing? You know, I, I'm, I have a, a very simple philosophy that, that life is for living. And I think that if you have achieved some level of success and you have the resources to do whatever you want, then you should put it to good use. You should be creating. I think that there's a lot of uh, philosophical questions as to what, what's the purpose in life. And I think fundamentally uh, a very core purpose of ours is to create things. And so I constantly think about how do I leave a footprint here? How do I add some value in the world? Um, and for me personally, because I have two young boys, uh, I think constantly about the role that they have in this world and the role that people that are minorities or uh, people that are underrepresented or people that have challenges against the system, how can I potentially advance uh, some of their uh, initiatives? So, that, so this new company I launched is really kind of an intersection, um, a culmination of many things that have been driving me. One is kind of the overall uh, social mission of trying to help underrepresented people, particularly Asian Americans, because I'm Asian American. Um, second is uh, I've been dabbling in doing things in entertainment for quite some time, mostly investing in production companies that make TV, film, and Broadway shows. 
Um, and through that experience, I saw the challenges that people of color have in kind of breaking through the system and getting their art and their films made. Um, and then third, as, as you rightly pointed out, you know, I've been a technology guy for a long, long time. Uh, I, I was a banker through Web 1.0, uh, a banker and an investor through Web 2.0, and now an investor, advisor, uh, and right-hand man in Web 3.0. And so when I started to see a lot of the evolution of blockchain technology, uh, crypto, NFT, I started to think deeply about how could these technologies, which I do believe are fundamentally uh, uh, you know, positive and uh, uh, life-changing, how do we use this type of technology for the good? So uh, rather than just use the technology to make fancy JPEGs and pictures, how do we use this technology to ultimately solve some issues? And so this company, Real8, is really kind of a culmination of all that because I saw the, the way that you use technology to help underrepresented people break through the traditional entertainment system, which frankly is not favorable to people of color. I was live on YouTube one hour ago talking about what Terra Luna uh, has done, putting one billion, buying one billion Bitcoin. And um, Do Kwon is a Korean who is in Singapore. So I was wondering right now, Web3, what's, who are the minorities in Web3? Is there something like that? Because it's, it's born global, it's decentral, everybody owns it. Yeah, I think it's actually fundamentally breaking down a lot of the traditional walls. And I think that you're going to see the evolution of different business models, much like what I saw in Web 2.0 and even Web 1.0. Um, I think... The, the beauty of uh, technology, particularly on the internet, and even more so with Web3, is that um, the color of your skin doesn't matter. Uh, the, the, the way you speak doesn't matter. What matters is what's inside your brain and how you use that. And so I tell people, particularly people from the entertainment or art world, who are not as well versed about uh, blockchain and NFTs, I tell them, look, at the end of the day, it's an algorithm. It's really the limit. Your, the limits to using this technology is the limits to your imagination. And so I think that's very uh, uh, illuminating and also um, optimistic for people of color. And so when you look at a lot of the blockchain community, uh, particularly in the United States and, and frankly, globally, um, a, a substantial portion of them are actually of Asian descent. Um, there's actually a substantial footprint in that universe. And um, I know that one of the questions that uh, you, you asked me to ponder ahead of time uh, was like, who are some of the people that you think have really uh, zigged and versus zagged? Who are the people that have uh, really pioneered, you know, categories? And actually, I actually have two people that I want to nominate for that. Uh, they're, they're actually a, a duo that run one of the most successful uh, investment firms in the NFT space. And that is uh, Yat Siu and Robbie Young. So Yatsu mm -hmm. is the chairman of Animoca Brands, and okay. uh, Robbie is the CEO of Animoca Brands. And um, I can tell that from your reaction, you're, you're familiar with uh, oh, yeah. the firm. Uh, have obviously done great work. Whatever they investing. touch becomes gold right now. Absolutely, you know uh, everything from Axe Infinity to Dapper Labs. Um, but what's, what's really interesting is that when you talk to these guys, they've been at it for a long time. And for a long time, I think there were a lot of people who said, like, well, what are you guys doing? 
why, why are you spending time in this area, these NFTs? Like it's, it's a joke. And you look at the, uh, the success they've had and it's, it's like the classic cliche. It's a overnight success, but it's not. <laughs> they, they've been at it for a long time. And I think the market has finally caught up to uh, the trend and the uh, the strategy of what they're employing. And as a result, you know they they have a, they have a great company, and it is effectively a uh, index fund or mutual fund for NFTs with a portfolio of over 150 companies, as, as I understand it from from Yat and Robbie. So um, I think that's a perfect example. They're obviously they are Asian of Asian descent. You know, uh, Yat is from Hong Kong. And Robbie lives in London, <laughs> so you can't get a more diverse, you know, uh, footprint than that. And I think it's a perfect example of how the uh, Web three is fundamentally going to rewrite kind of how not only how we do business, but also potentially the businesses themselves that live in the digital world. And uh, there are still millions of people who would make fun of them and say, "Oh, you're building NFTs. It's just a JPEG. You can." You can right-click it and then you save it. So what are you building? What is this technology? Because it's so nascent, it's so new that still people did, don't really understand the NFT technology. How would you explain to somebody what is the power of NFT? You know, I think fundamentally the easiest way to think about what an NFT represents, at least in my view, is it is a way for you to demonstrate that you are part of a community. Uh, on a more uh, simplistic level, it's like basically showing a badge or a membership card that shows people that you're part of a certain tribe, certain part of community. And because it is a smart contract, it's fundamentally an algorithm. Um, the creator of that badge, that membership card, can deliver to you, the fan, to the holder of the card, to the holder of the NFT, whatever they want. And I think part of the reason why you see a lot of skepticism is that it's actually human nature. When I reflect back on the uh, evolution of the web one and web two, I can't tell you how many people were highly skeptical of even those trends. I remember when I started to first uh, finance and sell companies that were selling stuff on the internet. And I know this sounds crazy now, many, many years later, but there were a lot of companies who said like, who is gonna buy a car over the internet? Like who is going to um, give their credit card information over the internet? You're insane. Nobody would do that, right? And I think what they were fundamentally missing is that every major revolution starts with an evolution. Every technology takes time to evolve. And sometimes the initial things that you see, the early adoption is somewhat misleading because you look at it and you dismiss it. So you think, oh, well, okay, great. In web one, people were buying, uh, you know, tchotchkes or trinkets over the internet. Um, people were buying books on the internet through Amazon and it was a money losing business. So this is clearly a faulty business model. But I think what they failed to see was that would be the kernel through which obviously Amazon would sprout a full e-commerce store where they would sell everything and then ultimately develop a whole backend cloud system that people could, um, uh, you know, uh, rent and, and lease. Same thing with like the web two. You know, I think the classic example is actually YouTube because when you think about the original evolution of YouTube, um, let's face it, a lot of the content on YouTube was, uh, you know, cats drinking milk and things that frankly weren't that interesting, right? Um, but now you look at it today 
And YouTube is arguably one of the most powerful forces in entertainment today. And so I think you're seeing the same thing with Web3, where you see this early evolution of things like JPEGs, uh, images that are traded and sold at massive amounts of money. And I think the skeptics look at that and they go like, okay, this is clearly a Ponzi scheme. Like who, who in their right mind would spend $100, if not hundred thousands of dollars on a picture, or who would spend that kind of money on a video that you can actually just watch on YouTube? And I, I don't dispute some of that. I, I definitely think that whenever there's a hot market, you do see uh, entrants in the market who are just, you know, basically grabbing the money and running. They're selling pictures that, you know, a cat scrawled on a piece of paper and, and then they're, they're, they're laughing all the way to the bank. But what I think they're missing is that I think this is the beginnings of what I just described earlier, which is I think this is actually the beginnings of a decentralized way of communities to come together and opt in or opt out and show that they're part of a community. And we all know that fundamentally, one of the ways that we all as human beings uh, find purpose is in community. We, we find purpose in being part of something with a mission. And so I think that this is the beginning of that. And so for the skeptics out there, I say, just stay tuned because I, I do believe that we're kind of at the cat uh, drinking video stage right now. <laughs> I think, I think we're at that stage where there's a lot of things that make no sense and look very strange, but I guarantee you in hindsight, you know, a year or two from now, we're going to look back and go like, wow, you know, I start to see the evolution of things that, um, that, that the original JPEG Web3, uh, you know, was the beginnings of. And my company, I think, is, is a, a step towards that because we're starting to uh, offer and we're going to offer things that are not just pictures, you know, are not just uh, one-offs, but are really part of joining a club, joining a community and uh, give the fan, the, the buyer of the NFT, a sense that they really are part of a, a greater purpose. And talking community, you started on Wall Street as an outsider. You went from janitor suite to executive suite. And, and that's what the book is about, sharing that with, with the world, sharing it with your boys, but sharing it with the world, actually. Can you share with us how, how did you work yourself up? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really, I would say there's two key things, if, if I had to really distill it, to what was the a key to me really ascending and, and not only uh, breaking through the ceilings, uh, in corporate America, but also, I think, also being uh, moderately successful as an investor, as an entrepreneur. And I'd say it's really two things. And um, as a spoiler alert, like there, there's no free lunch in this world. So uh, <laughs> there's not going to be a magic pill I took and everything took care of itself. Uh, but one is is really just hard work. So I worked really hard. I, I think I was probably one of the hardest working people at the firm for a long time. Um, you know, I, I'd work anywhere from 80 to 120 hours a week. For about 25 years. So that, that's a lot of hours. That's a lot of work. But I've always felt that um, if you are chasing something where, frankly, there is a limited supply, right? And we all know that promotions are the ultimate in limited supply because it's a pyramid. There, there are not as many CEOs as there are janitors at a company, <laughs> right? So just by nature, the numbers are that as you move further up, there are fewer people that can sit on the ladder. There are fewer people that can sit on the pyramid. And so I, I do believe that if you are fighting for something that's worth fighting for, so will others. And so you need to think about 
how do I outwork them? How do I out hustle them? And so first and foremost, I always thought about how do I outwork other people, um, you know, within limits, obviously, but how do I outwork, outwork other people? And then the second thing is, uh, and this is actually part of the reason why I wrote my book, is that um, I think it's, it's actually human observation and understanding that people are highly irrational. And so I spent a lot of time uh, during my formative years, as well as um, as I was going up the corporate ladder, really reading and consuming as much as I could around things related to human psychology, uh, cognitive bias, behavioral economics. And what that taught me is fundamental ways to analyze how people act and also understand why people do irrational things and help me think about what are the things that motivate the people around me? And then how do I build incentives for them to actually help me? And so, you know, a, a very simple example is that, um, you know, I'm, I've, I've constantly reminded myself and also uh, people that have worked for me and people that I mentor that one of the most powerful forces in the business world is self-interest. It is what is in it for me to help you. And so I would constantly think about um, working with people and thinking about how do I make them successful? Because particularly if they're my boss and they do well, then as they go up the corporate ladder, they will bring me along with them, regardless of my gender, regardless of my color, color of my skin. If I can help my boss do better and rise the ladder, then so can I. And so I would constantly think about ways to help my boss look better to their boss and their boss's boss. Um, and it actually worked quite well for me where for, for quite some time I was rising with my with my boss. Now, let, lest you think that, OK, you, you got lucky with a good boss. I did. I mean, I definitely had some good bosses. But I also tell people that um, hope for the best, but expect the worst and therefore document everything. <laughs> Make sure that you've got that stone tablet where it's etched in there that you have done what you said you have done. And so. If there were ever a scenario where you had a boss or colleague who is not really a great person and is not going to give you your fair due and is going to claim full credit for everything you've ever done, then at least you have this dossier, these tablets that you can show people and say, no, 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 this is what I did. And this is the value I brought to this company. So that's just a small example of some of the things that I, I have really motivated me. But I say it's hard work and then really understanding what motivates people. I love it. And I want to hear everything about how writing the book changed you uh, as a person after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprint.com slash tools. What was the process of, of writing the book? Yeah, so it, it actually, I never intended to write a book. <laughs> so what happened was that I, you know, I rose the corporate ladder. Uh, I, I went from, like you said, the janitor suite up to the executive suite. I was a managing director, co-head on Wall Street. Um, I've been at the firm for 25 years. I was one of the most longest tenure person in the entire firm. Um, and when I looked around, frankly, there were very few people of color. Uh, even today, when you look at some of the statistics at some of the top firms like a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, uh, more than 80% of their senior leadership are still white men. So it's very, very small. And what's interesting is that when you look at the junior level, there's actually a over uh, representation or over indexing of Asian Americans. So you look at that and just by, by, by the math, you see that the Asian American community actually has the biggest attrition rate 
right? They, they hit what's called the bamboo ceiling and then they get jettisoned out of the company. And so I knew that there was something special about the way I navigated my career. And I also went to two of the top business schools in the world. I went to Harvard and I went to Wharton and, and I've, took, I've taken you know, hundreds of hours of leadership training and HR. And I never learned anything from school or from all the training that really helped me in the practical world in terms of playing the political game and rising the corporate ladder. So I started to think about the fact that uh, the vast majority of Americans uh, are unhappy at work. And the reason is because fundamentally they feel that they're undertitled and undercompensated. And be, being a, a good dad with two young boys, uh, I, I don't want that for them. So I started to actually create what, what I jokingly call my manifesto, where I started to write down in bullet points all the things that I did that I didn't learn anywhere that helped me in my career. And it, it was really fundamental things like what were the things I did to uh, make an impression in a meeting? What are the things that I did to learn the lingua franca or the, the way people talk in a certain industry? Because that, that is important to show that you're part of a tribe. How did I negotiate compensation? How did I negotiate my promotion? How did I navigate these different things? And I created this uh, 50 page manifesto with a bunch of bullet points and a bunch of tactics. And my, my original idea was basically just to give this to my two boys when they graduated from college and say, okay, guys, here you go. This is, these are all the things your old man learned many, many eons ago, you know, when he was a corporate guy. And uh, I don't want you to make the same mistakes a lot of other people make. So here are my tactics and best of luck to you, right? And what happened was that a author friend of mine got wind of what I was doing. Uh, you know, I was kind of brushing it up during the pandemic and he asked me to send it over to him. I sent it over to him and he said, hey, man, there's a lot of great stuff in here. And I think a lot of people who feel underrepresented in the workforce like could really benefit from this. And, you know, originally I said, nah, nah I don't have I don't have the energy to write a book. But then <clears throat> I, I finally decided that I would do it because I could turn it into a philanthropic uh, effort. And, and that's fast forward. That's exactly what happened. So the book was published. And then I've been uh, talking to lots of uh uh, people of color, particularly Asian American groups uh, in universities and graduate schools, kind of teaching them a little bit of the, the, the tricks of the trade that helped me. And then all the let's, proceeds. Let's, I the let's dive deep into this moment because most people listening right now, they go, hey, that's how I feel. I don't have the energy to write the book. People tell me, hey, I should write a book. I'm an expert in this. It can help. but I don't have the energy. What was the change from I don't have the energy to do it to let's do it? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually a very disciplined person. Like when I put my mind to something, I, I just get it done. So for me, it was more the mindset of, am I actually going to write a book and to what purpose? And so once I set my mind on, okay, I can make this a philanthropic project where I can help a lot of people going around the country talking about the, the tips and tricks, and then I can give all the proceeds to charity, charities that are really meaningful to me uh, from the book. That's when I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And then mm -hmm. once, once I did that, um, I, I signed my publishing deal with Wiley, my publisher, in December, and the first December 2020. And the first draft of the manuscript was due April 2021. And I remember when I signed my publishing deal, I, I went to my wife and I was like, I, I don't know what I just did, but I got to deliver a 300-page book in four months. <laughs> you know, now. Obviously, I at least had the 50 page manifesto. So I had a bunch of notes on like what I wanted to talk about. But I think there were there were two things that I did that in hindsight were really, really important, uh, particularly for anybody that's listening, that's thinking about writing a book. 
Um, one is I work backwards. So I said, okay, how many pages do I need to do every day, every week in order to deliver 300 pages by April, 2021, right? And so I would, I put that in my calendar. I actually put, okay, th th these days I, I need to deliver, you know, 5,000 words, you know, by this week, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then the second thing I did, which which I highly encourage, is <clears throat> actually I actually hired for on my own dime. I hired a co-writing partner, and the the way it worked with my partner, who's Adam Snyder, and he's on the cover of the book, is that I would write a bunch of pages and um, and and a chapter or concept, and then I would send it to him on a Friday, and then we would have a standing call every Tuesday, and so. He was in many ways my constraint. He was the person that kept me accountable. And so if I was like on a Thursday and I've been goofing around on a Wednesday and I haven't really gotten to anything, Thursday would be like, oh man, I got to crank something out because I can't let Adam down. And so I would send him something on Friday and then uh, Tuesday over the weekend, he would read it. He would mark it up, edit it and go like, yeah, you know, this, this is this is too much Wall Street jargon. We've got to take that out or uh, I don't really understand what your point here. So by Tuesday, he would have a markup ready for me. And then I would turn that. And so that process really kept us on, on cue. And, and frankly, when we um, ultimately submitted the uh, manuscript to the, to the editor, um, you know, th there weren't a ton of changes. M most of it was actually reducing uh, the number of funny stories <laughs> because I, I had a lot of funny stories, but um, I went way over the word limit because I had a lot of funny stories. But those funny stories were more just entertainment. I don't think they were really that helpful in terms of like getting a point across. Um, and so I probably overdid it on the funny stories. And so that was probably the one area where we kind of cut it back a little bit. Um, but it, it's all about just focus and I think creating a schedule and being disciplined about it. And then having someone actually hold you accountable. Because mm. if, if you don't have anybody holding you accountable, it's really easy to get lost in Netflix or TikTok. And then before you know it, like, oh man, like <laughs> there's no way I'm gonna finish this thing. Absolutely. We are strategist prints. We don't accept a project that doesn't have weekly, weekly meetings where we show stuff, right? And we talk about what we have created. Because if you don't have this accountability loop, everything becomes low energy, low commitment. And that's just boring. The, the question that I have for you is every author is, is also a reader. What are books that inspire you? Yeah, so I let me start by saying the books I don't like. Okay, so going through uh, business school and lots of leadership training, I have read so many nonfiction books about like management, leadership, all that stuff. I, I've actually not found many of them useful at all. And, and it's really quite simple. The reason why is because we're all different and these books are actually designed to sell, you know, thousands of copies, millions of copies. And so they tend to put all of us in the same box. And so I, I kind of joke that if you look at uh, my family, for instance, you know, I have two brothers and we're all Asian American. We all have the same parents. And if you wrote a book about how to manage us, Right. You would you would write all the same things. You say, oh, yeah, they're, they're all the same. These three guys are exactly the same. And we couldn't be more different because we're all motivated by different things. And therefore, the books that I think are really, really interesting are the books that actually give you empirical research and thought behind how people think and why they do certain things. And so going back to um, the early part of our discussion, the books that I really love are the ones that break down cognitive bias behavioral economics. And so these are books like, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, or 
even even old classics like you know how to win friends and influence people by dale carnegie i mean these kind of books are really the ones that, that have been kind of the tools of my trade like not not only in rising the corporate ladder but also as an investor as an entrepreneur so those are the kind of books that i highly recommend people read and after you finish that if you still want to read like the harvard books on management yeah go ahead knock yourself out but but i do think that i have found the most use in those books that explain to me how people think and why they do things that are seemingly irrational and how do you then translate that into your world and into what you want to accomplish i found those books to be the most useful i love it where can people find you where do you hang out so i spend a lot of my time in silicon valley um uh from time to time i try to go to tahoe <laughs> to kind of relax and contemplate um i'm all over uh, typically all over the us because i have uh, boards everywhere but the easiest way is if you want to just get in contact with me is go to my website um it's www.lucrative.com and the lucrative is a play on my name so it's l-i-u-c-r-a-t-i-v-e.com and you can mm. you can send me a note there i i respond to everyone's messages if, if they have a question or whatnot uh, but that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me the way of the wall street warrior everybody go grab that book even if you don't have two boys <laughs> the way of the wall street warrior here it is beautiful book and um and uh dave who should be my next guest so you know this is a little self-serving uh but but i think my my co-founder of my company real eight is a really interesting guy we, he's my technical co-founder um he's a his name is fred sue hsu um and he started this coming real eight with me and he uh was a pioneer in the domain uh trafficking and domain parking space so he was uh one of the the first guys who saw the value of domains and bought a bunch mm -hmm. of domains and figured out how to monetize domains and then other people would effectively park their domains with his company where if let's say you or i bought a bunch of domains and we didn't know how to make money from them we would we actually lease them to fred's company and he would make money from them so Fred, Fred has really been at the forefront of many uh, new emerging areas like the domain area. Now he's really at the forefront of blockchain and crypto. And so that was the reason why he and I decided to partner together to, to start this company. So if you, if you have any questions about blockchain crypto, he's the guy. Oh yeah, yes, we have. And I still don't have an Ethereum domain or a Solana domain. Do you, do you have? I don't, not yet. I mean, I'm, I'm, I probably will shortly. <laughs> Cool. All right. I will. I will ask him a ton of questions. Uh, this is beautiful. Thank you, Dave, for being here on the show, sharing your wisdom, your book, your tactics, even with us. And please come back soon. Thanks, Simon. Thank. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategiesprints.com. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue